Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, this is James Joachim, host of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews. Tonight, we're looking at political ecologies, so sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. Let's take a step back real quick and look at nature. When it comes to nature, we know that we can look at it and break it down in terms of who does what. That is, every creature, every plant, fills a particular niche. You know, we know, for example, if we're dealing with a forest and we have a black bear, well, that's our pretty much our apex predator. You know, he's the biggest, baddest thing that pretty much does whatever he wants. Under him, we're going to have a ridiculous number of smaller predators, both in the stream and in the air. You know, we're going to have badgers. We're going to have owl. We're going to have, I don't know, bassin catfish in the creeks. When we start looking at who these people feed on, well, obviously we're going to have a ridiculous number of insects, but we're also going to have like deer, we're going to have other smaller fish, and other birds, and so on and so forth. And each one of those birds and fish are going to pretty much help the ecology along. Uh, the smaller birds, for example, are going to be dealing with the seeds and spreading that, you know, spreading the fruits and all that throughout the forest and making sure that you've got all these really great little plants growing up all over the place. The insects are going to be helping to break things down. The bottom line is that when it comes down to the forest, everything in it provides a particular service relative to the forest. So if we're basically really serious about science, especially the various life sciences, knowing what those ecologies are and what those niches that the animals are filling is very important. It also helps us when we're trying to figure out and diagnose problems well, we just have to figure out who's missing and we can go from there. Well, the same is basically going to apply when it comes to human communities as well. That is, we know within a particular human community, everybody has a particular niche that they have to fill. And if they don't fill that niche, or more importantly, if that niche is left unfilled for too long, other problems can develop. And yeah, I know this is starting to sound like I'm trying to do some sort of weird discourse on politics, but it's a necessary discourse on one because we have a lot of really great comics writers that, for whatever reason, tend to avoid dealing with the politics of their particular comic, which can get really weird, especially if we start dealing with people who are trying to do some sort of you know, political message in terms of how politics doesn't work, and yet they don't understand the politics of their particular comic. That is, they don't understand how the various characters interact with each other. I mean, think about this for a second. We're doing, say, a high school, you know? On one hand, we're going to be looking at how the teachers, the secretary, the vice principal, even the principal, all of them interact in order to basically get run the school itself. On top of that, especially if we're looking at uh, various Japanese schools, we're going to be looking at class representatives and how those class representatives fill a liaison role between the students and the faculty, and in some cases, how those class representatives tend to have a lot of power within the school itself. But when we start looking at the various students, we start noticing that, you know, it's 
I know it's a cliche, but we notice it really quick that if you break down the high school, you can notice that there's political groups within the high school itself. And how each one of these groups interacts with each other, well, can definitely influence the flavor of the school as a whole. You know, you've obviously got the political kids who, or sorry, the popular kids who take on the apex predator role. They tend to be the student body presidents, the class reps. You know, any position that a student can fill of actual consequence is probably going to be filled by one of the popular kids. When it comes down to it, we're also going to be looking at the jocks as pretty much a secondary. It's just straight up. A lot of schools tend to base themselves on the athletic programs they should offer. And because of that, well, jocks tend to have important words on how things get run. Then, of course, you're going to have band kids and nerds and all that. They start filling out the other niches that are necessary to make the school run properly. You know, if you need a homework assignment done, track down a nerd. You need something really cool in the background of your speech, you're going to be tracking down a band kid. The bottom line is, is that just like the forest, when we start looking at the uh, school, we're going to notice that there's a lot of niches that are filled and need to be filled. And if they're not, yeah, we're going to notice problems right off the bat. And keep in mind, this is going to apply not just to schools, but to any organization which involves basically humans. Or for that matter, any kind of sentient creature. You know, we're going to be definitely dealing with some sort of hierarchy, even if we're dealing with, say, a, co- a communal mind. And we as writers need to sort of keep that in mind. And what really makes this interesting is that you have people who are trying to do political cartoons that have no clue how the inner politics of their particular strip work. You know, I don't understand this. You're trying to do a political message, but you don't understand how politics works. You know? That just blows my mind. And think about that. Your big thing is, this is how politics don't work, and you don't have a clue on how they work. So how can you possibly do some sort of political message, you know? If you don't understand how the medium itself works, why are you playing around in that particular medium? You get me? So, we need to step back a little bit and start exploring a little bit how politics works within comics. And so what I'm going to be looking at is, well, it's going to get really weird really quick, because not only am I going to be looking at a lot of different types of organizations, but I'm also going to be looking at how those particular organizations work. And you're going to find out that the more you think about how your politics works within your particular webcomic characters, well, the more realistic things you're going to feel and the more organics are going to feel. And yeah, I know I'm going to keep coming back to this because let's get real. The more details you have for your comic, the more things you have to play with. More importantly, you need to think about how the various aspects of your comic work together in order to, you know, Basically, if you're trying to basically do a jigsaw puzzle and you've got a lot of parts missing, you're not going to be able to get a really clear picture of the image. In a lot of ways, you need to figure out what those individual pieces are. In a lot of ways, this is what the politics of a particular comic are going to be looking like. And the problem is is that you've got so many people trying to do basic things that they tend to forget how the various politics work. And because of that, they tend to have very shallow relatively boring types of 
comics going on. You know, they can look really great. They get hitting all the emotional beats. They've got this really great pacing. But they're not really connecting it to anything in the particular world. Or if they do, it's, you know, it's either way off on the, you know, outskirts of the reality, and it doesn't really matter. Or it's basically looking at something in an extreme microcosm of that particular comic, you know? We're not just looking at, say, how people interact with the community as a whole, but we're looking at a very specific, like, six or seven students or, you know, a spy, spy organization that pretty much just goes out and kills people. And straight up, if I've got a spy organization, wouldn't it be a little bit more interesting to find out exactly who they're trying to kill and why? Other than just simply sending them out on a mission? You know what I mean? So yeah, expect me to keep coming back to the concept of organizations when it comes to your comic. So with that in mind, let's start looking at some politics and how they actually work and how they should work in a particular comic. For most political systems, you're basically looking on two different axes in order to determine exactly where it falls and how much fun you can have. The first is static versus dynamic, and the second is pretty much how established that particular political system is. And when you start looking at the four extremes, you're going to see some definite advantages in how to do things. But let's break down the axes. First off, let's look at static versus dynamic. When most people tend to think of static politics, well, you start looking at the really old established areas, and that's perfectly fine. The, basically, you've got people that have been there forever, they've got families that have been in politics forever, and they pretty much have established the, how the politicking pretty much works. This can get really weird when we start looking at schools when you actually realize that we've got the same basic situation going on. You know, you've got class reps whose family has, or sorry, you've got families who have been class reps pretty much every time one of their students has been in the school, for example. You know, obviously we're looking at higher politics here as well. When we start looking at places that have established senates and congress and parliamentary procedure and so on and so forth, yeah, you're going to notice real quick that you have basically the same people keep popping up. Well, this is what you would call a basic static structure, and there are certain pluses and minuses of that structure. Relative to a comic, we have two major advantages right off the bat. The first is, is that these static structures, well, they provide actual structure. And once you have some sort of structure, you have something that you can actually spring off of, which in and of itself is great for writing purposes. At the same time, you've also got an established hierarchy. That is, once you've basically tried to figure out who you need to go to, you can actually go to this person or that person, and you know exactly what the department you're looking for is. Yeah, it can get a little silly, and it can, you know, be all over the place, And but the bottom line is, there actually is a department of some sort that's been established specifically for that particular setting, or that particular situation. And this applies to, again, the school structure just as much as it does to military, as much as it does to a governmental structure. At the same time, if you're going to have a situation where you, you want to do rebelling against the authority type of plot lines, well, you're going to need some sort of authority to rebel against. And if 
you can get something that's nice and entrenched and has a lot of power to begin with. Hey, so much the better. I mean, think about this for a sec. You don't want the characters, you don't want your characters to get off easy. You want them to have an actual challenge. And if you got an authority figure that's, you know, going to basically do whatever they want every time they go up to them and go, hey, that's a really cool idea. Let's try that out. Yeah, you're going to get really bored really quick. You need to have something you can actually rebel against. Something that's going to basically tell you, screw off, go away. You know, we don't need you. At that point, hey, your characters all of a sudden have motivation. You don't need us? Let me show you how much you need me. Okay? You know what I mean? Bottom line here is, the static structures are really great if you're basically trying to do some sort of rebellion type situation. On the other hand, the more dynamic setup, well, pretty much everything's in flux. And, well, if you're trying to take your characters and you're actually trying to build them a little bit of power, well, now's your situation or opportunity. You don't really have a whole lot of dynamic situations in real life unless you're looking at something like, say, Soviet Russia right around the turn of the, you know, revolution period, you know, from about what? 1916 to 1920, or Communist China, again, right when they were having the Communist Revolution. Even in the United States, we pretty much have had a pretty much static structure, except for, well, right around the time of the Revolutionary War. Interestingly enough, another really great example of a dynamic structure would be Ancient Rome, Ancient Greece, where you have a situation where you have a lot of different leaders coming in and out, in a very, over a very sh relatively short period of time. You know, you really want fun look at the Greek tyrants or the Roman emperors. You know, you've got people that are coming in and they're only having reigns of six months, a year, maybe a couple of years. And even though they're having a tremendous impact, at the same time, you've got this really weird situation where you nobody really knows what's going on and you've got people who are taking up full opportunity of the situation. Now, obviously, if you're trying to set up your characters so that they can, you know, they're actually the ones defining what the government's going to look like, this is really great and can be all sorts of fun. But there are some obvious disadvantages. The first, obviously, is that you don't have a lot of structure that's, being, that's already been set up. That is, if you've got something that you need to fill out and deal with, you're either going to have to make the rules up as you go, or pretty much figure out how to solve that particular problem. Whereas with a more static structure, you would already have a department you could actually go to. The other problem in terms of character development is that, well, when you have a static structure, you can actually spend some time and have some fun developing all these different characters because you know they're going to be around for a long time. If you have a more dynamic situation, well, all of a sudden these characters aren't going to be around for a whole lot of time and they don't really matter. So... Why bother, you know, developing them all that far? So, obviously, you know, it's just straight up. If you're going to put all this time and effort into a character that's only going to be there for, like, you know, maybe a couple of scenes and that's it, yeah, why bother putting in the time and effort into it? Just do something really basic, really cliche, and, you know, you can get away with a lot of really shallow character development. On the other hand, if you're doing more static, well, at that point, like I said, you're going to be wanting to do something else a little bit more deeper and a little bit more varied. 
you know, you can have a lot more fun with a static structure in that regard. The other problem, of course, is that there is a stability issue. That is, whereas the static structure has, you know, proven its worth over time, a more dynamic situation, well, with the right, you know, with the right characters and the right opportunists and so on and so forth, yeah, they can pretty much nuke that over. And if we're talking about an outside force, all of a sudden decides to take advantage of the situation. So, yeah, they're probably not going to be all that stable over a long period of time. But that's fine. The major advantage that the dynamic structure gives you is that you can have a lot of fun. If something's not working, you can kick it out, you know? If you decide that for whatever reason, you decide, hey, the democracy just isn't working for this particular situation, let's throw in a monarchy. You can do it. You want to throw in a dictatorship? Cool. You know... You can have a lot of fun just messing around and showing how different people would take over the situation. Some people that would be more into trying to figure out what everybody else is about and working on rules that way. Other people say, screw it, I'm in charge, you're doing what I say. So if you're trying to basically mess around with a lot of different types of pol- politics and all that, hey, a fluid structure might be worth it. It also makes for a really great running gag. And I'm going to obviously point out Star Wars. Empire Strikes Back. The Deaths of the Admirals. More accurately, the Darth Vader choke promotion. Yeah, you remember in Empire Strikes Back where you had Darth Vader would every so often, you know, get tired of one of his admirals. They'd screw up and he'd just force choke him on the spot and promote somebody. In fact, you can actually watch an instant be promoted all the way up to Admiral over the course of the movie. And, of course, he, well... Spoilers, he dies at the end. So, but the big point here is that you have a very fluidic situation you can actually throw in as a running gag. You know, every time you go in, you have to deal with somebody different. You can actually have a little bit of fun with it. The other axis, like I mentioned, is, well, how established the actual situation is. Now, keep in mind, just because you have a static situation, it doesn't necessarily mean it had to be established. It just means you had somebody who was very organized, set things up, and say, hey, we're going to be doing it this way. Yeah, we're sort of looking like uh, United States roughly a couple of years after the Revolutionary War. Everybody figured out basically, hey, here's what we need to happen. Here's how we're going to do it. And they just kicked it out. You had a very basic non-established situation and all of a sudden became very static very quickly. The default, of course, is that if you don't have it established, it's going to be very fluid as you try various things. You know, you can have some fun with it. But when we start looking at an established system, we notice that there's some very definite hallmarks to it that need to be considered. First off, it's going to have an aristocracy of some sort. And sort of look at American politics. Even we have our monarchy, you know, we have our Kennedys, we have our Clintons, you know, so on and so forth. We have various people that we know that have very strong political power, even if nobody in that family happens to be in politics at that particular time. We know that those families are the cornerstones of the the power situation. Of course, the cool thing is that some of those pillars and cornerstones are changing all the time, but the bottom line is we actually do have some sort of established these are people in charge. At the same time, this also means we have very established positions. 
You know, like I was pointing out earlier, if we need to go somewhere, we know exactly who to go to. These have been established over time. There's a tradition to them, and so on and so forth. That is, we actually have offices that actually have some sort of actual history. And that's sort of cool in and of itself. You're also going to have to have some sort of rebels that are necessary to the situation. I mean, you just need somebody every so often to go in and kick over the anthill just to make things interesting all of a sudden. Admittedly, upstarts are not going to be appreciated and are going to have a hard time of it in terms of establishing their own power. But the bottom line is that when we start looking at who's in charge and so on and so forth, we definitely need to have some sort of old school versus new school situation going on. You know, we need some sort of fresh blood coming in, even if it turns old real quick. You know what I mean? If you don't have that fresh blood coming in, you're going to have a situation where it starts becoming questionable exactly why the situation runs. And if you're hearing me start talking, hey, if you've got a political cartoon and you want some story ideas, just throw the old school versus the new school and try to figure out exactly... But don't get too crazy about it and actually have a little bit of fun with it because I think it's everybody's tired of, you know, we have the new fresh blood and they're doing all these really cool things and they get stomped on by the old school. Well, sometimes you need to look at why that old school actually got established in the first place. You know? Yeah, it's fun to kick over the anthills, but it's sort of fun to also figure out why the anthills were there in the first place. If you're doing a political cartoon, please keep this in mind. I am getting so tired of rebel good, empire bad. Sometimes you want to be the empire. You know what I mean? On the other hand, if you're just establishing your system... Well, yeah, you're going to be looking at a more cutthroat situation. Everybody's trying to establish what niche is theirs. They're not really going to be caring about anybody else's feelings on the matter, and they're going to basically just saying, screw it. I'm in charge. You're not. Deal with it. And you've got a huge number of people doing this. And think about that for a sec. You essentially have a hunger school, a hunger congress, you know? Yeah, I know I'm riffing a little bit on the Hunger Games a little bit, but you know, you've got all these politicians that all of a sudden have a weird situation where they can be in control and they don't have to worry about you know, hiding it. They can be out in the open and actually have some fun with it. Yeah. They're going to go for it 100%. Yeah, you're going to have people that are trying to establish structures, don't get me wrong, but generally speaking, in order to establish a structure, you've got to be actually be in charge. And because that you need to survive that those initial rounds of calling. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So yeah, when we start looking at, you know, the, esta- the establishing of the political structures being basically a hundred game situation, it's 100% right on the mark. Admittedly, there's going to be fewer casualties and a lot less blood, but, you know, it, we can deal with that. You also sort of need to keep in mind that, well, the big problem you're going to have with any kind of political structure that's basically in a state of flux is that it's going to have a hard time dealing with outsiders. That is, it can't establish diplomatic ties with other groups for fear that those diplomatic ties are going to be overturned really quickly. At least that's how the outside group is going to be looking at it, you know? Yeah, we can establish all these really cool diplomatic ties with this organization, but will they be around next week? You know? What can I count on? Do these people have actual power? Are they just simply telling me this? I think when just... Nine times out of ten, what you're going to have is those outside forces do one of two things. Either A, they're going to back off and let the situation... You know, wait until the dust settles and deal with whoever won the Hunger Games. On the other hand, they could just simply say, screw it, I'm tired of the BS, we're going to take that place over. In which case, those people better get their stuff together very quick. And again, sort of a fun concept if you're going to have some fun with a concept. You know, we've got some little young republic that's decided to set itself up and is actually starting to, uh, you know, dealing with its birthing pains of trying to deal, figure out who's in charge and who's got all the power. And you have an outside source that basically says, screw it. I like your area. We're taking it over. Yeah, I bet you that group is going to get that group that's establishing itself is going to get very organized very quickly. You're also going to see really quick that, well, if you have any types of bad guys in the area, well, they're going to be taking full advantage of the situation as well. So, you know, it's just something you need to sort of keep in mind in the situation. So... You know, if you've got a political situation, you're going to have people that are going to be trying to take advantage of it. And if it happens to be just being set up, yeah, you can have a lot of corruption, even more so than you would in a more stable environment. Again, you've got people that are trying to cut out their territory, so they're going to be taking advantage of it as much as they possibly can. Just something to consider. Alright, so basically, if we've got the two axes that have been set up, we've got... Static versus dynamic, and we've got a question of just how established the situation is. What kind of political structures are we talking about here exactly? First off, the majority of comics are not going to be dealing with anything above an organizational level. That is, if you, even if you have a spy structure in kit place, there is going to be the legitimate question of, well... I'm sure the spy structure is going to have people... That, you know, it's going to obviously have to deal with in terms of the local political structure, you know. CIA and FBI, for example, are constantly having to deal with Congress. But reality is is that you don't really have to worry about Congress and who the specific people you're dealing with unless, of course, those people are going to be your bad guys. You know, you don't have to deal with Congress more than you absolutely have to. But like I said, so when it comes to the spy organization, yeah, you're going to be dealing with the inner politics, you're going to be dealing with the bad guys overall in terms of who they're trying to kill and you know we're talking like you know if we're talking like James Bond we're looking at MI5 versus say Smirsh 
or any of the other various organizations that are out there. But the bottom line is is that you don't have to worry about politics too much outside of the particular organization in question. This is going to be important. When you start looking at stuff like, so let's break it down into, say, office, school, military, and even a team situation. Because, yeah, even if you have a small six-man team, you're still going to have politics in that particular team. And think about this for a second. You know, you're going to have your apex predator. That's who's ever in charge of that particular team. You're going to have your secondary. That's either going to be the so-called co-captain, because let's get real, if there's a team that has a co-captain, usually that co-captain isn't so co. You know what I mean? You're going to have some sort of a backup person. That way the main captain or main leader can go out and have some fun once in a while. At least somebody behind in theory that's in charge. Um, having a little bit of fun with it, for example. On Enterprise, which, yeah, I know is pseudo-military, but just go with me on this. You actually have different crews that take over different particular times of the day. You know, it's got to be we're operating 24-7. Because of that, you have certain people that tend to be on the first shift of the day, they happen to be in the second, and even happen to be on the night, you know, the graveyard shift. And yeah, there actually is a graveyard shift when you have pretty much everybody else in the ship is, well, sleeping, at least in theory. But, and of course you'll have the squad leader, and then you'll have what we call tactical roles. It just basically means that they're trying to avoid being in leadership positions, and they're just there to basically look good. Yeah, I know, they're not exactly all just looking good. Some of them can actually cause a lot of damage. But the bottom line is, when you come to a team structure, when it comes to the political niches, you're going to basically have a leader. You're going to have the person who's second. You're going to have a squad leader that's going to basically deal with the other team members. You know, this way that the upper management can actually go off, figure out exactly what's going on, and then relate all that information to the people underneath them. And you're going to find this is, tends to be reflected in a lot of different other organizations. You know, where you have the upper management goes off, figure out exactly what's happening and how to deal with it, and they have everybody else deal with it. Whether or not they accept input from those lower end members depends on the situation. And just as a kicker, keep in mind your odds are you're also going to have somebody within the team that wants to, well, let's say get rid of the captain. They want to take it over, and it may not always be the best suited for the position. I mean, one of the interesting conflicts is that when you have somebody who's, you know, who should never be in charge of something, has decided they need to be in charge. And when they actually get into charge, they screw things up ridiculously. So, just something, you know, you're going to have to have some sort of conflict in the organization. Having some idiot who's there for vicious backstabbing jerk is just par for the course. Alright. Like I said, you're going to see a variation of that pretty much wherever you go, but it's important to keep that in mind. And it's also worth noting that you've also got some really interesting permutations of it. Let's look at an office, for example. You're going to obviously have the boss or the owner. You're going to have the underboss. Um... You're going to have the employee rep. Yeah, at this point, you're actually going to have somebody who's a straightforward on the liaison between the employees and the management. And here's where we start hitting into the fun part. That is, you're going to have people that have 
shall we say, what I I want to call it extrajudicial powers, but basically you're going, to have, you're going to have people that have a lot of power in and of themselves, but aren't necessarily part of the management. And think about this for a sec. When you go into an office, the first person you're going to be dealing with is the secretary. And as everybody who does office politics knows, the secretary is arguably the second most powerful person in the entire office. She used to decide, you know, who gets access to the boss, how much access they get access to the boss, and can do a lot of organizational details, like sometimes they're in charge of setting the hours, that sort of thing. Or they're in charge of doing a newsletter. And yeah, a lot of this, you know, sounds like they're just simply there to run the office, but that gives them a ridiculous amount of power that puts them, that's still outside the chain of command. Well, when you start dealing with politics, you're going to have a lot of those people. You know, the IT guy. Yeah, I mean, I sound like he's just there to basically do the support for the computers, right? Yeah, imagine how much power that guy has when it comes to basically saying, hey, we need this particular part in order to become a lot faster and a lot more updated and to keep up with everybody else. You know? Or you've got the person who actually knows how to run the printer and can actually do it pretty well. Again, a little bitty power, but in particular, he happens to be really focused and really scary. Mailroom guy. He can delay packages. He can basically make sure other people get their packages as quickly as possible, and he can even set up secondary communication situations. English translation. You need to get a message to somebody within the office really quickly, and you need to do it discreetly. He's the guy you're going to want to talk to. You know? Again, you've got all these different situations, people who are different, who have their own power in their own weird ways that aren't necessarily part of the chain of command, but still need to be considered in terms of ramifications of dealing with those people. Just, it can make our office politics make them very weird very quickly. The schools, again, can get very, are even weirder than offices. Uh, it's just straight up. I think we've already talked enough about them, but the bottom line is you need to figure out who the principal is, who the principal secretary is at least, who the vice principal is, the strong points of their personalities as well as who the leaders and who the class representatives are or a student body association. You know, specifically, who holds the officers and who are the officers from the student side who are going to be interacting with everybody else? You know, all these various things need to be considered. And then you're going to basically need to look at, like I said, you know, outside the chain of command type people. You need stuff done, you're probably going to be talking to the nerds. You need something big, bad, and, you know, you need something moved or you need something damaged, hey, you're going to be talking to the jocks. You know, you need something cool done, AV club. Again, you need to figure out who these people are, exactly how much power they have, and you actually need to define who these people are to some degree at least. And again, you there's enough examples of schools out there that I'm not even going to worry about it. Plus, we've already talked a little bit about them. And then there's the military, which we really need to talk about because so many people screw this one up. All right. Here's the deal. In the military, you have a very strong chain of command. You know, if you're trying to figure out who's in charge of what, it's really not going to take that much effort to do so. 
you know, you've got to combat people, you've got to repair people. You, and the really fun part about this is, is that the people who are actually in charge are not combat people. This is the part that almost always a lot of people tend to get really wrong really quick. Yeah, in the Army, especially in the U.S. Army, we have a military occupation specialty, or MOS, for pretty much everything. When I was in, we had a thing called Double Zero Juliet. Yeah, bar owner. Go figure. You know, the, the key here is that, whereas a lot of your administrative type may have been in the combat arms at some point, and yeah, obviously, if we're dealing with the base, we're going to be looking primarily at what kind of damage it can do to the surrounding area, especially if somebody comes in and tries to take it over. The thing to keep in mind is that the people who are actually in charge of the base aren't necessarily combat people. And that's an important source of conflict within the military itself, is that you have people who are, I can shoot a gun really well, but you're going to tell me where to shoot this gun? Yay. The key here, though, is to understand there is a very strong chain of command in the military. You understand who's in charge. You can track things down really quick. And if you're looking to figure out who to talk to to get something done, no problem. You just have to figure out who's you know, the chain of command to get to that person. However... You have a lot of people that are what we call non-command people that tend to have a lot of power. And I'm not talking the officer versus non-commissioned officer situation. We're not talking, you know, if, you know, a good old butter bar lieutenant has decided to get in control, who at sergeants he's going to have to deal with. That's an interesting structure in and of itself. You just have to understand that sergeants basically are the ones in charge of day-to-day, and the officers deal with the overall you know, strategy type of situation. It's a straightforward tactics versus strategy. Sergeants, a.k.a. the NCOs, deal with tactics. Officers deal with strategy. If you can understand that difference, you pretty much have the whole officer versus sergeant thing down, and you're good to go. But what we're looking at are people... See, the U.S. Army for a time actually had a rank called specialist. In fact, they still do to a certain degree. Um, However, they had it going all the way up to the same rank as the master sergeants. What this is sort of a weird way of saying is that it recognized that some people would be outside of the chain of command. They're, They're, you know, their MOS, their particular occupation would be important, but it wasn't necessarily important enough to put them in charge of anything. You know, have them go to and go to that guy, figure out what, get that guy to help you. Cool. That person actually being in charge, not so much. So because of that, they usually did have an entire specialist um, hierarchy that was well, well outside the chain of command. Well, as anybody knows, anytime you have some sort of chain of command situation and you have people that are outside that chain of command, well, those people that are outside the chain of command tend to get a lot of power relative to their particular area. What this basically translates to is that if you want to get a weapon down, you're going to be going to talk to the armor, who's not part of the chain of command. However, he is going to have a lot of power in terms of what weapon you're assigned, how well that weapon is taken care of, and so on and so forth. 
you know, you top it out. The Marines have a tradition called dog robbing. This is essentially is, generally speaking, a lower-ranked individual, somewhere between Private First Class and Staff Sergeant, who basically is able to get a hold of pretty much everything. Again, outside the chain of command, definitely has a lot of personal power. After all, if you can get pretty much anything anybody wants, yeah, you're going to be Mr. Popularity. Especially if that thing happens to be something that's, shall we say, contraband. You know, you want drugs, you want alcohol, you want it on the base. He's the guy you go to. You're also going to be looking at your various medics. The key here is that, yeah, you're going to have a very definite chain of command, but you're also going to have people that are outside it who can still wield a certain degree of power. On top of that, you're going to have a very weird situation that's both static and fluid. And this is something you really need to think about for a second. Basically, if you have a situation, especially if you're a combat situation where everybody's dying or being transferred out, and this is on a you know constant basis, your power structures are going to be very fluid. However, at the same time, they're also going to be very static. That is, you're going to be very well-defined, and you're just going to have to look at somebody's collar to figure out exactly where they are in the hierarchy. On top of that, you've got the additional qualifier that, well, you have a lot of people that have absolutely no problem respecting the position, but they may not respect the person. It's just part of the military, and, and to a degree outside in real life as well, where you may have, say, your boss that you're definitely going to respect the position. That is, if the boss decides to say something, you will do what the boss says, but you don't necessarily have to respect Mr. Witherspoon. You know what I mean? You may have some very definite personality conflicts with the guy. Well, you're going to see this in the military too a lot as well. You're going to have a lot of people that are, shall we say, not people persons. But they're still going to be in positions that you have to deal with them on. So yeah, you're going to have to respect that person's position, even as you don't necessarily respect the person themselves. So, when it comes down to it, yeah, the military can be all sorts of fun, and you got a lot of people that tend to get it wrong because they tend to look at people looking being hidebound and limited to their particular rank. Yeah, it's not exactly an accurate situation, and it just gets aggravating. But the bottom line here is that when we start looking at political ecologies, you need to figure out who this person is and who they are within the particular political web. That is, exactly what do they add to the situation. Sometimes they're going to be well within the chain of command. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're going to be waste outside the chain of command but still wield a certain degree of power. You know, there's a lot of weirdness to politics especially when you start dealing with people and I hope I've brought that out a little bit. It's just straight up, when you start dealing with your comic, you need to figure out what the political layout looks like. You need to figure out what everybody contributes to it and not necessarily in a straightforward, you know, I need something to be blown up, we go with this guy. We need something to be shot, we go with that person. We need somebody to take care of the kids. Yeah, we've got a person for that too. No, that's that's a job, okay? It doesn't necessarily mean where that person falls in line in terms of the chain of command or, generally speaking, in terms of the big, huge political ecology you, be, you should be setting up. What we're looking at is that the person who can shoot, yeah, it's a pretty powerful skill, but it's common and it's 
that person has no political power in terms of that. The person who's taking care of the kids, on the other hand, yeah, that person has a whole lot of power because everybody likes doing things for their kids. And if they're doing things for the kids, they're obviously going to be doing things for the person who keeps in charge of the kids as well. The guy who can blow things up? Yeah, we're going to keep him as far away from everything that we absolutely can. Again, no political power. On the other hand, the guy who supplies the rifleman and the uh, demolitions person, that person's going to have a ridiculous amount of power because he can keep those two supplied. And if you don't think keeping him supplied is a good thing, you've not been paying attention. So all I'm saying is that when you start looking at the, your comic, start building in some really great po- political ecologies to it. Throw in the, what everybody's niche is in terms of the politics. It's going to add a lot more detail to your comic. It's going to add a lot more fun, and it's going to let you have a lot, be able to do a lot more things in terms of what kind of messages you can play with. So definitely, try to get away from the standard, you know, politics are bad, and the more stable the structure, the, bad, the worse it is. Sometimes, though, stability is not necessarily a bad thing for your particular comic. You know, you're going to have to make a decision, and... I hope you have a lot more information to make that decision with. That said, if you happen to find everything I'm talking about useful and you want to help support me a little bit, go over to the patreon.com slash two sparrows, T-W-O. Um, I'm working on basically setting up so you can have all sorts of episode guides there. Already set up there are what I'm calling tips and tricks. Straight up, if you're trying to get a little bit of inspiration, feel a little bit better about yourself, or try to deal with something relatively minor, there's probably a, there's probably a mini podcast there for you. So please go over to the pot, Patreon and contribute a little bit. I will I will definitely appreciate you for it. So that said, have a good evening, and I'll talk to you later. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.